On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Ken Collins about customizing serverless for custom ink. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 32. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Ken Collins. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks so much for inviting me. So you are a staff engineer at Custom Inc. Uh, so why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what Custom Inc. does? Yeah, uh, I think maybe first I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Really great to be here. Uh, I definitely would like to think that it's not because we both have 38-inch identical Dell curved monitors. A uh, very exclusive club. It is uh, an exclusive club. <laughs> sure. So uh, Custom Inc. Um, let's see, I'm a staff engineer. I focus mainly on the e-commerce side. Uh, Custom Inc. is about 20 years in business. And I think uh, we're probably only unique in the fact that we're a successful company that has a long history with Rails. So we've been uh, going along for those 20 years. A lot of those years have been with Rails. And we've uh, sort of completed a lift and shift into the cloud since about 2017. And we've had some uh, uh, interesting things to do with cloud adoption or adoption of serverless and all things basically AWS. And what about yourself? What's your background? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm a self-taught uh, programmer, used to be a designer, used to be a marketing director. Uh, uh, I think uh, at one point in time, I was the author for the Active Record SQL Server adapter. Uh, so uh, represented uh, the Ruby community uh, in Microsoft when they first started doing their transition to open source. And I think I really love open source. Uh, I'm focusing mainly on retooling my personal career and learning everything about AWS. Uh, and that started about last year and doing everything I can at Custom Inc. to sort of sell the serverless story and to get more cloud adoption within the organization. Very cool. Thank you. All right. So I wanted to have you on today because I've had a number of guests and we talk about serverless in theory all the time. And we have all mm -hmm. kinds of great ideas of architectures. And and I mean, we, we get into some of the practical stuff, but um, but the hands on piece of it and how companies like Custom Inc. are actually, um, you know, getting their hands dirty and doing the work to figure out how to implement it. And every one of those stories is different. And uh, and, and I just really love the story that Custom Inc. has. I think I, I saw a testimonial on um, the AWS site um, about sort of how you started with it. So I want to get into that because I think that's really interesting for people to hear how other companies get started with with serverless and Lambda and, and how they start adding that. And again, you've gone through the experience of the lift and shift um, I know you have some interesting microservices stories that I think would be great to hear about. Um, but let's start with that. Let's just start like you started moving to the cloud. Um, you did the lift and shift thing, right? I'm assuming those are mostly monolithic applications. Um, so what was what was the next step for for Custom Inc? Yeah, I think uh, our story arc, maybe about 2014, was key sort of monolith, right? We had a, a very traditional uh, big Rails front end and a big Rails back end that sort of shielded us from a legacy Java back end. And at that point in time, and we still didn't finish our cloud sort of migration until 2017, which is basically just a bunch of EC2 instances. Uh, at some point in time in 2014, uh, the, I think that's when Lambda came out and there was a lot of buzz around microservice architectures first. And we even had a business unit that had started off in 2014 that we sort of gave them this majestic monolith and the business unit decided to immediately retool that entire monolith into microservices first. 
Uh, it was just the hot thing to do in 2014. Sure. And I believe that took about a couple of years to really fail miserably. In fact, everything that they went to engineer uh, on just breaking things apart eagerly because that was the architecture to do versus the success of the company driving that microservice architecture, all rolled back, all changed, uh, eventually got merged back into the core business line. And that really sort of affected, I think, a lot of the corporate memory about how we approached microservices. Sure. So then after you sort of had this epic failure, and again, I think this is um, uh, this is nothing against custom mink because I think this happens to a <laughs> lot of people <laughs> who try to do that second version syndrome and say, we'll just take our existing application, break it up into smaller pieces and everything's going to be great. Um, that typically doesn't work. Uh, sometimes it does, but most of the time I don't think it does. Um, so then, then you shifted to this idea of uh, kind of using Lambda functions and uh, and serverless in general really to uh, start splitting off. You actually started more like with DevOps tasks, right? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, there has always been a little bit of uh, AWS glue. I call, you know, when I look at Lambdas, I've sort of, from my perspective today, I put them into three buckets. Uh, AWS glue is when you're just sort of gluing things together. Maybe you're popping Kinesis streams off of a DynamoDB or you're just doing some little small task, uh, maybe scheduling the shutdown of EC2 instances. Um, then there's the sort of microservice architecture of where I think a lot of people have their headspace around lambdas. Uh, and then there's are more sort of larger applications. Uh, in 2017, we had a brilliant engineer named Hunter who took a key part of our design architecture and that really needed to come off of a, a Rails app uh, and image magic and put it into a, a node-based Lambda. And that's what our customer testimonial on the Lambda product website is about. I think we had like 90% in cost savings. Of course, we got the scaling up and the scaling down feature. And I think starting in 2017, you know, past that 2014 sort of failure story, we really got a good idea of what Lambda could mean for us from a microservice perspective. And it was all about the cost uh, savings and, and basically breaking apart a key part of our infrastructure around our design lab and, and pushing that just to Lambda. I think that's a traditional, what they call sort of a north-south client, right? It's it's directly where we're exposing that microservice as a uh, as a front-end uh, graphic application uh, to the design lab. Yeah, and I think that's a great strategy too. I mean, first starting off, getting that confidence with um, with Lambda and being able to use it for things like you said, shutting down and, and spinning up those those instances um, and using it for those peripheral uh, sort of work cases or workloads, I think is really interesting. Um, but then... That was, I think, the right approach where, and that's, and, and, and again, this, I think, is why you had some success with this, is you took one specific piece of um, functionality or one, you know, sort of bounded context, which was your, um, mm -hmm. you know, which was your graphic conversion system and, and said, we're going to build this as its own separate standalone thing. Um, and then how did that kind of integrate back into the, into the rest of the application? So I think from an integration point of view, it really doesn't uh, integrate at all other than you're just calling this one service and you're offloading certain paths from one application. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the way that it sort of fit in with our architecture is that we would see more of these opportunities when breaking key parts of Rails applications outward and just converting very small parts of them into a Lambda. Another good example that we did is our catalog application was a Rails application and it was still pulling S3 images right from the Rails app. Uh, it was also another application that was a key API for a lot of product information. So hitting that Rails application with S3 IO eventually made the API less performant, right? You mm -hmm. found you had to scale a small part of it uh, to make the whole better. And we just sort of 
over the next year, just sort of reapply that pattern. What needs to come out of an application? What needs to be more performant? Um, and just popped it out. Like we let success define the ley lines of the architecture. You go through the microservices exercise, you start building out these, um, uh, these other components. So how did you, how did you kind of go from, um, you know, lift and shift through microservices, then to using Lambda for these sort of, you know, sort of side jobs or whatever, and then moving into sort of this idea of full stack serverless? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, Full stack serverless is a term that I sort of popped up on. I've uh, I've totally co-opted it from uh, Nader Dabit's uh, uh, Amplify work. And the idea sort of came to me when one of our engineers, uh, one of our senior engineers, looked at these different microservices that we typically had in Node. And each one was very unique. Uh, sure, you would have like, it would be on Lambda, but there was no sort of convention on how might your POJOs, your plain old JavaScript objects might look, how you might do routing, et cetera. And he asked if there's any way we could sort of bring structure like we had in our Rails applications to these microservices and or other things. And that got me thinking, right? Like, um, how can we get Rails in? Uh, and it never sort of been came about or sort of a thought about it before, but it was only maybe about like a few months after the official Ruby runtime release. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of about that time I was like, how can I get Rails into this Lambda? How can I make it work? Uh, how can we put structures into these lambdas, uh, not only for microservices, but also for maybe full stack applications? And is that even possible? And that started about last year with uh, the project that we had called Lambi, uh, which literally allows you to drop a Rails application into Lambda. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So tell me a little bit more about um, tell me more about Lambi. Well, technically speaking, it is a small rack adapter. Uh, your Rails application would. Uh, in most other environments, whether you spin it up through a thing called Passenger with Apache, you would just start a process and then you would send it messages. Uh, Rails has a, or at least Ruby has a system for talking to HTTP applications called Rack. And if you look at the data structure for sending messages to a Rack application, it's basically an event. And all Lambie does technically is it converts either application load balancer or API gateway events into that Rack event so that your Rails application knows how to deal with it. Uh, your Rails app is no wiser of whether it's mounted in Apache or Nginx or anything like that. All it knows is it's just getting rack messages. Very cool. All right, so let's move on and talk about the architecture um, of the first project that your team did. Uh, this is a little bit interesting. You you made some, uh, you know, everyone makes architectural choices, right? Every architecture looks a little different. Um, mm -hmm. But you used application load balancer instead of API gateway. Yeah, right. Like, so we used uh, API Gateway with a lot of our microservices. It had just come out at the point that we just made the Lambi gem that ALBs became a choice. Uh, that actually felt like a comfortable choice for me. I had no other reason to use it other than I knew I didn't need the features of API Gateway, right? The only thing we used it for was just basically uh, proxying events right down mm -hmm. to the Lambda, even in our microservices, right? It was just all about that HTTP event. So ALBs made a great choice for that. And the architecture of our first Lambi app really sort of afforded us a new way to sort of adopt and look at the cloud. Uh, one key aspect that we really liked was sort of infrastructure as code. None of our lift and shift uh, EC2 instances other were basically just configuration management. Uh, Lambda through the AWS SAM framework afforded us this infrastructure as code first dip into these architectures. Uh, the app was eventually, it's kind of like a Photoshop in the cloud application as a rendering services. Uh, we talked to DynamoDB 
And it, we even deploy this application multi-region for availability and redundancy, uh, use uh, latency-based routing with CloudFront, uh, and even tie together our DynamoDB and S3 tables uh, through cross-region replication and global table usage. Um, even did some uh, optimization of another Lambda that spun off on the side where we did image optimization. So traditionally a Rails application might approach background jobs through something like a, a Redis database mm -hmm. and a, a processing system called Sidekick. Um, and one of the things that I've been really advocating for is, is when you think about these full stack server side Rails applications and Lambda, you don't try to lift and shift your thinking of what you might do with container-based development, either with uh, sort of Fargate or Kubernetes. You really look at all the constraints that Lambda gives you, and you look at those as opportunities and ways to sort of feature develop your application in that new method. Yeah, and there's a great, uh, you have a great slide that that outlines the the um, the architecture here, and it shows, you know, the, the latency-based routing, it shows the Dynamo DB global tables and the, the replication in here and, and some of that. So I will make sure I put this in the show notes because I think this is uh, super interesting. Again, I love seeing how companies or how developers are building big apps with it, not these little point of, or at least uh, proof of concept type apps. So this is, uh, um, this is really, really interesting. So once this was built, right, and obviously it you know it looks like it's a, a solid uh, looks like it's a solid system, um, but then you have to put it into production. So, how does your team measure success with this? Well, given that I'm sort of a, a person that likes to think about application usage from a customer's perspective and the value that things deliver either for a customer or the business, uh, for me, success is adoption. Uh, that's that's the bar right there. Do we get it out? Is it getting used by other platforms? Are our marketing and other sort of uh, social teams picking up this application and using it for uh, on-site personalization? That's success to me. Uh, nothing in CloudWatch tells me if it's success or not. It's uh, you know if it's not performant, then we can optimize that. We can break apart the application into two smaller bits, optimize the rendering engine, uh, you know, move from image magic to libvips, etc. Uh, so success always for me is, did it reach the customer? Did it provide business value uh, for someone? Yeah, and I think that's important. Like, did it provide business value? And and part of that was, I mean, you mentioned the 90% savings, um, but what about like time to market? Like how long did it take your team to do this? How many engineers did you uh, did you use to do this? Well, I will admit that I, uh, I totally shaved a yak here. I had to make Lamby in order to get this app out. So, uh, my performance on this one is probably not good. Um, what I'm interested in is if other people can sort of take the work that I've done uh, in the Lamby gym and the work that we've done and sort of co-opt that for them. And I think that's a key part of what we're going to be doing internally at Custom Inc. And the idea is simply this. If you can take this, create a new application or an optimization and you know simply uh, do a Rails new or follow the Lamby docs and get that spun up and hours to days, then you've fulfilled like one of our most important tenants at Custom Inc, and that is ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Can you uh, control everything from the application, the creative side, the front end, the back end, all the way to production and own that process all the way through, uh, whether it be to an internal team or an external customer focused tool and make it happen. And I think with Lambie, you can do that in hours. 
Yeah. And that, you know, and what I really love about what your team did with Lambie is the fact that you you went out, you built this for your own purpose, which you're all, you know, everyone's trying to solve their own problems, right? That's one of the big things we do. Um, we try to have this, uh, I guess, philosophy in serverless where we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, right? But sometimes the wheel doesn't exist yet. And so companies like Custom Make will build these things. And there's other companies too, like Nordstrom has done all kinds of amazing, um, you know, they, they have a bunch of uh, tools and services that they've released. Um, and that's just really great to contribute back to the community so that the next group makes it easier um, since we are very, very early still, um, you know, in tooling and all this other stuff that has to do with uh, with serverless. So um, so that's awesome. So I get that it took you a little bit of time to sort of get Lambie up and running, but um, once you had it up and running, um, you know, you're saying it's a pretty fast process to build these applications. Yeah, absolutely. The hardest part is building what you need for your customer. And I think that's what the focus should always be on and the time should be spent, right? Not about like, uh, how how do you get this infrastructure? How do you spin up EC2 instances? How do you uh, uh, configure Fargate or God bless it, Kubernetes? Uh, <laughs> you know, that I think the the time to that you spend in your app is going to be the time that you're delivering the features. The getting it up and running and getting your first deploy in the cloud uh, can be hours. And there's a story that we're telling here, right? We have more work to do with Lambie to make that story better. Sure. So for example, we just finished the uh, adoption of our Aurora serverless gem. And that opens up moving from DynamoDB to sort of your traditional relational database uh, with the Aurora serverless uh, option. And the next step would be something like with RDS proxy. And then after that, we would really like to have something done to where we have this integrated uh, with a serverless application repository where someone can literally hit a button and start off with a Rails 6 app uh, and a full CI CD pipeline and just go from there. That's awesome. All right, so let's let's go on to the next sort of phase here, right? So phase one, you built this application out um, and you've had some success with it. You had a lot of success with it. You had to build Lambie for it. So where where's Customing going now? What's the, what's the next phase? Yeah, I think internally the story is a lot bigger than uh, Lambie. So we're working on trying to figure out how to get a lot of our EC2 instances into things like Fargates or some sort of container-based system. Uh, after that, our Lambda story, which I'm trying to spearhead, is really broad, right? That's going to be, uh, we have a lot of data teams that are doing traditional sort of ETL-style data management. We want to move to real true evented architectures that are afforded to us with EventBridge uh, and Lambda destinations. Uh, you know, and, and popping events off either from Aurora or uh, DynamoDB. And those will more than likely involve a lot of sort of smaller, either Node, Ruby, or Python-based Lambda glue and or microservices to do that. Um, my hope is, is that over the next year or so, we're going to have teams during our hackathons and other sort of business units spin up these Rails applications, uh, much like the one that we did for our initial Lambda deploy, and just crack open new possibilities. Uh, we've got a lot of stores launching, uh, like physical stores that you can walk into. Mm -hmm. The possibility for reinventing small parts of the company are sort of numerous. And the good thing that I, I try to position my thinking around is, is, is I kind of don't care what that innovation is, right? Like if I can just make the tooling so that smart people on the edges of the company can sort of take that tooling and just run with it, that's that's where I succeed. Awesome. All right. So what about some of these other things that you're building though? So you and mentioned this idea of kind of bringing back um, 
RDS into the mix. And with the last project mm-hmm. you did, you you heavily adopted DynamoDB. You got the replication from it, the global table, mm-hmm. some of that stuff. So I'm curious, so why the move or why the, the focus back to RDS or RDBMS, I should say? Yeah, I will admit that this is a purely sort of adoption cell, right? I want to give people the option to look at Rails in its entirety in Lambda. Uh, and that from traditional Rails is, is a relational database, right? All the tooling around Rails is built around uh, an open source adapter pattern, which can facilitate anything from server, uh, SQL Server, Oracle, Maria, MySQL, Postgres, et cetera. Uh, so I think it's really easy for Rails developer, a lot of the process in Rails for running database migrations, it's just built around these relational databases. So first and foremost, uh, DynamoDB is great. It does have a steep learning curve. Uh, I'm almost certain my first implementation of the single t- uh, table strategy that I did is okay. Uh, <laughs> but I would have rather started with a relational database and sort of migrate it to there. And that's the that's the story that I want people to adopt Rails and Lambda with. So um, I knew that wasn't possible when things first came out. You, uh, uh, I believe, have written sort of a node uh, package that sort of manages these zombie connections. And I took the stance where I just didn't want to play with that, right? I just waited for about a year and I, I, I waited to see if something would happen. Mm-hmm. And certainly, uh, I think twenty late 2019 is when Aurora Serverless uh, came out. And that opens up a connection to the database through HTTP. And uh, it took me about a couple months to get through it. But I successfully wrote an active record adapter gem that monkey patches the MySQL connection from native uh, protocols to HTTP. Mm-hmm. And it took me, let's see, over the Christmas break here, probably about a week and a half to do it. And it passes all 6,000 active record tests. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's, that's the first story in the database adoption. And um, But I, I think it's not complete, right? It's only really good for, say, uh, these infrequent workloads or applications that need to just kind of sit there, maybe pet projects that people have on Heroku are good candidates. Uh, and we certainly at Custom Inc., we've migrated our internal innovation app, which sort of uh, allows people to share the ideas around hackathons that we run twice a year. And we just ported that right on over, uh, right off of uh, Heroku and Postgres and migrated it to uh, Rails with uh, serverless. Yeah. And that open source package you're talking about, serverless MySQL, I didn't want to build it either. It was just one of those <laughs> things where it's like um, you you had to at, at the time. And um, the the uh, data API is great. Um, and, and that's that's the HTTP one that you're talking about. I've actually found it to be very useful um, uh, for a number of things, especially in the fact that you don't have to put it in a VPC, um, which is uh, incredibly uh, helpful if you don't want to have to, you know, get sort of that extra latency and some of the, you know, set up a NAT gateway and some of these other things you have to do if you're running, um, uh, you know, a Lambda function inside of VPC. Um, and and then be, you had a performance cost with that as well, you know, for the startup time. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of gone away. I mean, it's still there. I mean, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was before. And, and, um, uh, and, and I think that you still have a problem with relational databases. You're still going to have some sort of scaling problem. So even if you handle the zombie connections and you handle the connection pooling and some of that other stuff, um, you know, so you're not overwhelming your database, um, you're still going to face scale issues, I think, when you get to a very active uh, system. So uh, do you have any plans to sort of deal with that? Or is that just something that you kind of, you know, is up to the the implementer? Yeah, I do. I think right now I'm putting my effort into looking into the newly released uh, RDS proxy in preview mode. And I think that'll help out. 
I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked too deeply at it yet. I don't know if it's going to work or not. But from what I've looked at, apparently you can use the same MySQL protocol, mm -hmm. and then uh, which means it should be transparent to the Rails application, and that it will manage all this for you. Uh, even in some of our larger EC2 applications with Rails, we have issues with connection management. Right? There's already a need today for the RDS proxy. Um, so bless their hearts if people do want to put Rails and sort of bring this you know, true Lambda lift into the, uh, into reality and use a relational database. I want that tooling to be there. And I want to tell a story with that. I actually think RDS proxy can help out with that. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, and I think that, you know, I had this discussion with, um, James Bezik and basically, you know, RDS or relational databases aren't going away and there's a ton of, you know, there's a, there's absolutely a need for them. So, um, they are, they are very, uh, uh, they they are very useful for for the right types of applications. So, so uh, I do think that that's a you know the RDS proxy is an interesting way to try to solve that problem. Again, even if it solves the connection problem, there's still potentially you know getting a really big RDS cluster um, is going to have its limitations at some point too. Um, so it depends on what you're doing with it. But certainly for most use cases, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what is your what is custom ink doing to sort of help other engineers in your organization learn serverless and learn you know sort of this cloud native stuff yeah we've been working really hard over the past year to up our game at cloud adoption and that's a that's a broad story so we've done everything from a lot of internal workshops either around fargate kubernetes uh lambda and stuff uh we definitely have uh i think we just we do a a, a cloud guru uh teams account uh We've started encouraging uh, certification at all levels, everything from uh, management to the engineers. Uh, I believe we have maybe 20% of our team now certified. Um, and, you know, and I come from certification is a weird topic, right? So I'm certified for the developer associate. I'm working on my developer pro and I think the architect pro. And coming from sort of an old schooling system to where I never got grades in my initial school. For some reason, my parents sent me to some hippie school and I never knew what <laughs> grades were. So I tend to just do things for the doing and achieve where I want to achieve. And I believe certification in some way is a is learning how to pass a test, right? The real skill comes from how right. you apply that knowledge. So we've taken the approach that certification is a way to open people's eyeballs up, right? Just so that they can have a good candid architecture discussions when we're doing designing and, and architecting uh, without, you know, not from an implementation point of view, but just sort of from an understanding, right? So if you simply knew that S3 batch operations was a thing and that got you to implementing some sort of lambdas and evented hooks and, and data processing, that's success, right? Um, we don't look at certification as a way of saying, yeah, I know how to implement everything from VPCs uh, uh, to Lambda list to microservices and all in between. It's knowing about where to look first and then going and finding it afterwards. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And that, that's that's one of those things with a cloud provider like AWS, there are just so many services and so many um, so many subservices in a way, you know, different features of a particular service that uh, just getting exposed to know that something like that exists, I think is is great. So um, so you, you're, you're doing some training and, and you're doing some hackathons and things like that. Um, is this something that you give engineers, you know, extra time to sort of focus on that learning piece? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do it in two ways. So one of the other ways that we sort of encourage uh, the cloud adoption is we formed an internal guild uh, that we simply just call the AWS ambassadors. 
And basically we take some of our senior engineers uh, and we put them into this group and we look to sort of build out this cluster of people that have that sort of cross-functional knowledge. So there would be an ambassador that focuses mainly on machine learning, uh, SageMaker, et cetera. Uh, I'm sort of the ambassador that focuses on Lambda and you know these Rails applications. And we have many more that fill those gaps, right, of all those AWS services. And then I think with uh, regard to the teams, uh, we have bi-yearly uh, hackathons. Uh, every other Friday, uh, people get to work on what they want to, whether that be sort of learning or training, or they can continue the sort of, uh, we call it the Imaginate Day. So traditionally, when you hold these hackathons, you know, for multiple days, you're going to sort of be working with different business units, people that are not really in your sort of small fire team or group and learning to solve sort of problems outside of your normal purview of project work and roadmap stuff. What happens is, is if you don't care and feed that process throughout the year, then those things just sort of, uh, they, they gain traction and then they kind of die off. And the idea with the Imaginate days is that uh, you have time and are totally encouraged, whatever it is you're doing, cloud adoption, uh, solving a business problem, to pick that stuff up and keep driving it every week or so and just bring it home. So it's really up, it's really the individual's gumption on if they go into the stuff or not. We've done enough on our side to open that door. Uh, and one of them is the uh, the cloud adoption and training. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's one of those things with without, there's just so much to learn and there's so much that's different um, that if you if you don't have sort of a constant stream and, and, and have some time to, uh, you know, to read the blog posts and go through the docs and experiment with some things and do that, it, it becomes really, uh, uh, I think you can fall behind very quickly. And that can be very frustrating, especially considering that I, I think serverless gets more and more complicated uh, every day because they keep adding new things to do. Um, and while it's, you know, it's got a whole bunch of benefits, it, you know, the learning piece of it is still uh, is still pretty tough. So, and that was a, you know, that was the huge reason why I wanted to approach it from Lambda, right? I know when you say you and Chris Munns talked, you know, y'all, y'all joked a lot about the, the Lambda lift mm -hmm. and, you know, I want people adopting the cloud. And one of the things, you know, I attended serverless conf in uh, 2019 in New York, and it almost seems cliche that everybody is coming up with their own. I call them like these serverless specific micro frameworks, right? This is how we do it. This is, um, this is how we're sort of using Lambda with full stack applications and stuff. And I found it kind of tiring, right? Like it's there, you can almost dedicate for each one of those. And it could be that maybe in two years or three years time, that is going to not be around anymore or uh, Lambda is going to evolve in such a way. The, the idea that we've gotten with sort of uh, Rails into Lambda is that your Rails app can live on no matter what, right? I can move it from Heroku. I can move it to Lambda. If I want to, I can move my Rails app from Lambda to Fargate or EC2 or, or DigitalOcean to, you know, wherever I want to take it, it will work. Um, and it's been, Rails has been working for many, many years. And I like that idea that you almost have some sort of bulletproof uh, portable, you know, for those people that want to go, I want to be cloud agnostic uh, workload, essentially, that can be put everywhere. Um, and it helps me focus on the innovation at the Lambda level, like the provision concurrency, right? Which I don't think we need, but I can now start focusing on things like destinations and other things and how AWS works versus these micro frameworks and the tooling around them. But then again, you know, people are different, right? So uh, any way you get into the cloud, I think is a, is a good story. 
So that's, I think that's really interesting because I, I mean, one of those things or one thing to think about when building services for Lambda and other, you know, other managed services is that we want to kind of forget about um, how we used to build applications in the past, right? Because things are so different. Um, so, you know, Taylor Otwell built his Vapor project that allows you to basically take a Laravel project and stick it into Lambda and use, you know, Q, SQS queues and, and the database and some of those other things um, to just sort of make a, a Lambda, I'm sorry, to make a, a Laravel project work. Um, and you've sort of done the same thing with Rails. Yours is open source, a little bit different, but, but how... How restrictive might that be, right? When we think about building applications, don't we want to build them, when we build serverless applications, we want to build them using very specific technology, making very specific uh, technology choices, uh, component choices, things like that. Um, do you have any worries that Lambi will kind of box people in and maybe not be able to take advantage of all the best practices? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, if your app is the app and you need to move that up elsewhere, that's going to be portable. What's not portable is uh, the implementation that you put around CICD, the IAM permissions, the other things like that. That's always going to be the cloud lock-in. And I've never been anybody to sort of like not do anything for vendor lock-in. That to me is like a uh, FUD that you can easily just call out in a meeting sure. and just stop things from moving. Right. Um, so. Ruby code is Ruby code. It's going to run wherever you put it. So if you have it running in a Lambda doing popping events off of S3, then your vendor lock-in or your portability is just going to be what events you listen to, right? And uh, the Ruby's going to do what the Ruby does. Uh, and that's true for Node or Python or any language. Uh, so I always approach it from the language is portable, the application is portable, uh, the way you integrate with the cloud. Um, let's say if you're taking full advantage of API gateway and you're, you know, proxying it right to DynamoDB and doing all those things, those are definitely not portable, right? Sure. They're very valid if you want to build a mobile application with Amplify and they tell a really good, compelling story. Um, I would never say someone don't use Amplify because you're going to get vendor locked in into the full suite of full stack services that AWS offers. Go all in, get customer value. That's the, that's the thing we should be doing. All right, so that that brings up sort of this interesting topic too, because Rails apps are, you know, typically Rails app, I, I would I would see them as sort of their own little microservices, right? You can certainly build them out that way. So how how do you see serverless microservices? Because I think people think of them differently, but but what what's the organization of a serverless microservice look like to you? I think with the ones that we've traditionally thought about are. Uh, image processing, right? So Custom Inc., uh, we allow people to personalize uh, apparel. So we have a, a, a flagship product of ours called the Design Lab. And everything that we've pretty much used serverless for in microservices are going to be some form of image serving and image optimization. So for us, it's really around taking an HTTP event and giving a binary image back. And that could be because I was a graphic artist, but uh, I think it's going to be different for a lot of people. But most of our microservices center around image manipulation and returning images back. Um, and that and that's with multiple Lambda functions, or are you building them mostly with these with these Lambda lifts? You actually could describe these as a Lambda lift, right? So um, the one that does a lot of our proof generation, it has uh, it does all this routing internally. It basically can do maybe up to 30 different types of routes and 30 different types of images for any type of product and or design that you're putting on it. It is a node uh, microservice that we call. Its package size is probably 35 
maybe 40 megabytes compressed. So it gets up to the size there, right? Because we're sort mm -hmm. of bringing the layers in for libvips and things. So it's uh, it's very possible somebody might look at that. And even though it's just a small node application that does one thing, uh, return product and uh, images back with proofs on them, somebody could say that that's a, a Lambda lift. That's interesting. Yeah, I just and, and you're having success with it. And that's and I mean, the same thing, you know, Michael Hart um, and Bustle, they use uh, these Lambda lifts to do uh, to do a lot of the processing. And it's because there's less overhead in understanding how each individual function works. Um, you know, they they have the same sort of scale behavior. So it's not like you need to be able to scale up one particular piece, but even how you're breaking it out. So I think that's interesting. And I think that the way people approach this, that's why I just love talking to people like you, because I love hearing all these. I love how people are actually implementing it because we know what the best practices, uh, you know, what the best practices are or supposedly are. Um, yes. But uh, but those tend to break down when you when you uh, you put things into production and in terms of how people find more success. Um, and actually uh, in implementing that. Um, all right, so before you go, uh, one more question for you, because I think this is always super important, especially for new companies uh, or companies that are just starting to adopt serverless. You know, what, what's your advice to other companies um, that are looking to uh, you know, get started with Lambda or serverless or just even maybe just starting migrating some things into the cloud? Yeah, I think it's always to look at what your business is doing right now and where you need it to be sort of performant first, uh, right? So always drive by success, right? I, I'm a very huge believer in uh, DHH, uh, the sort of creator of Rails that you you do the majestic monolith first, you build an application out, and then you sort of look at where it needs to either be performant or broken apart. Um, for Custom Inc., uh, if your story is anything like ours, it would basically be starting with the monolith, uh, looking to where sort of business units lie in that monolith, and then breaking out into what we sort of call key domain services, right? So we would extract the design lab from the monolith. We would extract the product catalog from the monolith. We would extract, you know, a group order form and quoting systems and things like that from the monolith. So that to me is a really good way to sort of adopt the cloud. If you know you're going to be breaking up this monolith into smaller parts, some of them could be Lambda lists, some of them could be say Fargate or EC2 instances, whatever. But I think um, when you look at what's happening with your current application, let your success drive your architecture. And I think Lambda is a good place for either moving apps, but it's also a really good place for if you're in AWS to question if that's an opportunity for you to look at doing data and events and uh, uh, units of work in a different way. So step one is not um, just break up your entire app into a bunch of different microservices. Oh, yeah. My predecessor for Rails and Lambda did, I think, a similar architecture. It was called a system called Jets. And if, if I remember right, the architecture looks similarly where in Rails, you have sort of this MVC controller and action pattern. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have a controller, a controller can have a number of sort of uh, uh, RESTful routes. And the way that that was thought about is, it's kind of like what we did in 2014, right? Every controller would be broken up and every action into its own Lambda. And essentially you might have 30 or 40 Lambdas talking to each other. And I can't even wrap, I, th I think I'm a smart person, but I can't even wrap my head around how you'd manage the CICD pipeline and the maintainability of that. It does get complicated. Well, anyways, all right. Listen, Ken, thank you so much for joining me. And thank uh, you for and, having me. Well, thank you for sharing the the story of Custom Inc. and 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 Lambie and what you're working on. So, if uh, people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you, how do they do that? Well, I've uh, got a couple places. So, on Twitter, you can follow us at Custom Inc. Tech, or uh, me personally, I'm Meta Skills M E T A S K I L L S on Twitter. 
Uh, we have a little product site that we made for Lambie, and that's available at lambie.custominktech.com. And of course, we blog a lot at Custom Inc., and that is at technology.customink.com. Awesome. All right, we will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Ken. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ken Collins for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 32. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.